On the record on News Talk. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. Uh, Jared Howland and Gronin the A are with me to go through the papers. And to be honest, it will not take uh, much imagination again to imagine that there's only really one story uh, on the front page of this morning's newspapers. We'll start with the Sunday Independent. Ireland embraces refugees of war. There is overwhelming support to welcome refugees from war-torn Ukraine, according to a Sunday Independent Ireland Thinks poll. With suggestions at the highest level in government this weekend that up to 80,000 may ultimately be accommodated here. At the end of a week of devastating war in Ukraine following the invasion of that country by Russia, the poll also finds strong support, 49%, for the view that Ireland's original position on neutrality is out of date. There is also growing, though still minority support, 37%, for Ireland to join NATO, up three points in a month. Um, as I said in the introduction, we'll have Kevin Cunningham from Ireland Things to talk us through some of the findings of that poll a little bit later this hour. Uh, in the meantime, also on the front page of the Sunday Independent, a rare glimpse to some, uh, some non-Ukraine stories this morning. Ministers Michael McGrath and Simon Coveney, uh, as you heard in Quisic's News just a moment ago, are the public's preferred choices to become the next leaders of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, respectively, according to that same opinion poll. The exclusive poll finds strong public support for Michael McGrath, who's the public expenditure minister, to succeed Micheál Martin ahead of Dublin-based South TD Jim O'Callaghan and other Fianna Fáil contenders, including Dara Caleary and Barry Cowan. Meanwhile, uh, Simon Coveney is the public's preferred choice to succeed Leo Varadkar, ahead of Helen McEntee and Simon Harris, both of whom were considered by many in Fine Gael to be in a straight battle to succeed Mr, uh, Mr. Varadkar after Mr Coveney lost the leadership election to the current incumbent five years ago. Um, I'd imagine Cara Galine could look forward to a lot of uh, attention if uh, Simon Coveney and Michael McGrath were both leading uh, the coalition parties. But we'll maybe come back to that maybe if there's a lighter moment later in the hour. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Times um, has an extraordinary picture of uh, dozens, if not uh, over a hundred, uh, Ukrainian people taking shelter under a, a motorway bridge, a bridge which the Ukrainian army itself uh, basically blew up in an attempt to try and halt um, any easy uh, Russian arrival. And the headline underneath it, I think, says a lot of what you need to know. Merciless Putin shells evacuees. The world watched in horror yesterday as Russian artillery pummeled the besieged Ukrainian city of Mariupol in violation of a ceasefire to allow civilians to escape. An evacuation from the southern port city along an agreed route was suspended only minutes after it began yesterday morning, forcing civilians back into hiding as Russia disregarded the agreement and continued its bombardment. Um, Also on the front page of the Sunday Times, again, some more question marks around Ireland's military power and political alliances. Uh, Simon Coveney says we must prepare for a national debate on our sovereignty and security in the weeks ahead as Russia's attack on Ukraine is fundamentally changing the politics of Europe. He says the Irish public will have to face questions that haven't been asked for decades about our relationship with Europe and America, about enlargement of the EU and about European security. Now, there is more about um, that failed ceasefire yesterday on the front page of the Mail on Sunday. Putin shells fleeing women and children Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin yesterday faced a wave of international fury for offering safe passage to the Ukrainian refugees only to bombard them with artillery as they fled. Desperate Ukrainians trying to escape some of the fiercest fighting since the start of the war found themselves trapped after Russian forces were accused of ignoring an agreed ceasefire. It came after Putin earlier said that crippling Western sanctions on Russia were akin to a declaration of war. And he warned that an attempt to impose a no-fly zone in Ukraine would lead to catastrophic consequences uh, for the world. Uh, That is something that we did talk to uh, Lesia Vasilenko about the Ukrainian MP. Uh, We pre-recorded our conversation with her this morning because 
frankly, she's in Kiev and you can never be sure at any moment whether people in Kiev are, are safe to take a phone call, whether they can stand by their phone for a couple of minutes or whether they need to, to go and, and run somewhere. Uh, so we've pre-recorded our conversation. As I say, we'll broadcast it after 12 o'clock. She has some interesting thoughts around the question mark of a, a no-fly zone and how exactly it all might uh, work out in practice. Um, finally, for now, the front page of the Business Post. All farmers... To be told to plant crops amid fears of a food security crisis. A story by Lorcan Allen, Daniel Murray and Michael Brennan. They tell us that all Irish farmers will be asked to plant some of their land in wheat, barley and other grains as part of emergency plans being drawn up by the government to offset a predicted food security crisis in Europe amid Russia's ongoing assault in Ukraine. It comes as the EU plans to introduce emergency measures to slash its energy dependence on Russia by rebuilding its reserve oils, uh, reserve stocks of gas and oil while also turning to alternative sources of energy commodities in other parts of the world, the Irish government plans to bring in a swing mechanism for excise duty on fuels, which means that it could fluctuate in value depending on whether oil prices go up or down in a bid to keep prices somewhat stable at the pumps. Uh, but what effectively this amounts to is uh, China McConnell assembling an emergency team within the Department of Agriculture to develop a new scheme to encourage farmers to grow significantly more native grains this year in a bid to offset the likely shortfall of grain supplies from the Black Sea region. Uh, Russia and Ukraine together in that kind of Black Sea region account for about a third of the world's wheat production. And obviously while Ireland itself enjoys pretty large food security because we are a net exporter of food, there are concerns now that this war will result in serious shortages of wheat um, elsewhere in the world, which then of course has knock-on consequences for, for bread and everything else. The last time that Ireland introduced such a measure was during World War II when tillage rules meant that every farmer in the country had to plant at least one acre of land in crops to support food supplies and similar steps were also taken during World War I. Uh, that is a, a quick tour of a fairly uh, downbeat and pessimistic uh, look at this, ma- this morning's front pages. As I said, Jared Howland, columnist with the Irish Examiner and Public Affairs Consultant and Groening the A uh, of the Journal.ie with me in studio. Um, Groening, your remarks just when we were going on air that it's... Um, not to immediately try and put a downer on people who are tuning in this morning, but it's been the, the toughest read of any Sunday papers for a while, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's it's the imagery, it's the personal stories that we hear, like the MP that you, you mentioned. It's just the endless amounts of that. Yeah, again and again, that is quite upsetting and just unbelievable the amount of sacrifices ordinary people are making in order to defend their country. You know, there's a piece in the Sunday Times today about sandbags on the streets of Odessa and these this gorgeous kind of architecture of the city and this kind of war, um, you know, theme or backdrop to it all now and just how how this uh, beautiful kind of city, dilapidated city, a melting pot of sailors and Greeks and Jewish people and Russians uh, defending the city against Putin's forces that are creeping closer to that city. And that's just, you know, on the macro scale. And then on the micro, you see you, there's a photo of a couple and the husband is kissing his wife. And I just, every time I see a photo now in relation to Ukraine, I know the story behind that, mm. that they are fleeing the country, the mother and the children, and that the fa- the fathers are staying back uh, to fight. And it's it's a really upsetting kind of, image because this is not what you expect to do when you start a family or when mm. you when you go and you know have yeah. a job it is it is not what the average citizen expects to do so it's it's really um it's a it's a big moment i suppose and the the scale of it's just huge you know that they're expecting kind of 
this massive refugee crisis almost out of nowhere. And we're so used to seeing Putin over the years. He's been in charge since the early noughties mm. and he's been alongside other leaders and we're familiar with him as a leader. He hasn't just recently come to power and decided to do this. He's been planning it obviously a long time. In hindsight, we, we it, that kind of seems obvious after Crimea, but... It is just, um, I think that's what kind of makes it so shocking to see. There was obviously warnings that this was happened from experts, mm. but nobody can see into his mind and he's kind of shown what he was thinking all of along uh, all along now. On that note, um, Jared Howley, you could make a fairly compelling case that uh, what's happening now is because the West or, or somebody else didn't uh, cry stop or even if they did cry stop, they didn't do enough to... Um, impede Vladimir Putin in the last um, 22 years. As, as Gorney says, he's literally been in power since the first day of, of this century. And there's been all sorts of stuff in the meantime. I mean, of course, not least the annexation of Crimea um, eight years ago. There was Salisbury. There's been so many other things that have been laid at Russia's door, ele- alleged election interference around the world. And maybe Vladimir Putin only feels emboldened to do what he's done in the last 10 days because there wasn't enough of a global worldwide allied response in the meantime. All that is true. And of course, democracies are messy. Uh, And 27 democracies in the European Union is particularly messy, similarly with NATO. Uh, As he gets there longer and longer, he puts more and more Western leaders through his hands. They come, they they go, they're gone. Mm. Of course, then he had Trump. And I think the dislocation of Trump uh, to the perception of the West particularly in Russia, uh, whether NATO, in fact, was effective in any way, shape or form for the future, whether it even had a future. Um, The strength of the alliance between uh, America and Europe, the weakness of Biden coming after Trump. I think all of these things fed in over time to to embolden Putin vis-a-vis the West generally. Mm. In relation to Ukraine uh, specifically, you have a very long-standing German policy vis-a-vis Russia uh, going back to the 1960s of détente. And the whole German political establishment, um, given its background in, in World War Two, given the horrors of, of the of the Eastern Front, of the divided Germany, was of peace, of engagement with Russia. Uh, and that engagement continued until two Sundays ago mm. when the Chancellor of, 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 of the German Federation stood in an unprecedented and so far only ever uh, meeting of the German Parliament on a Sunday to tear up that policy. Mm. So until that day, until that moment, yeah. Putin had reason to believe that these people are divided, incapable of concerted mm. action, mm. and he had a lot of proof points. Yeah. Um, you were in government buildings, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you were around for, for um, the 1st of May 2004 when we had the accession right, of the I 10, remember the 10 vividly, countries. I remember it vividly, vividly. In Farmley and, and the, yes. the hoisting of the flags mm. and 15 became 25. Mm. Um You can't ever have thought in that moment where you're seeing these countries, many of which had been previously very Eastern looking in outlook, now suddenly, now firmly, quite literally, you know, wrapping themselves around the flagpole of the West, thinking that they'd ever have to, you know, potentially even consider having to take up arms to defend their their pro-Western pluralist outlook. No, it's 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 difficult to remember the, the euphoria of that day in, in, in Dublin. And this was a great regathering of the of the European continent, uh, unprecedented in, in, in history. Uh, it was to be an era of peace because we knew, because we felt the European Union in, in bringing institutionally all of these countries in, 
to its structures of European Parliament, European Commission, trade, engagement. This was going to be a period of unprecedented peace and prosperity. But of course, those eastern countries came from deeply dislocated uh, backgrounds in, in Bulgaria and Romania. You you had horrible regimes. And, and democracy doesn't flower overnight out of those horrors. Mm. And we can see in, in Hungary and Poland uh, the tensions that that passed since the Second World War have created in terms of creating democratic structures. Additionally, uh, of course, we are hugely dependent on Russian resources. So this gives uh, not not just, uh, if you like, an ideological reason for engaging with Russia, allied the Germans since the Second World War, but a practical reason, literally, mm. to keep to keep to keep the lights on. So we are enmeshed in all of these ways. Putin could read that. He believed, I, I think, increasingly in the weakness of a decadent, aging, incontinent West, and he struck. Mm. Uh, Textory Ukraine somebody points out that we already grow tons of grain already but we feed it to animals breweries and distilleries this person says why don't we just grow the grain for the humans I think the problem with that might be that uh, you then wouldn't have the grain for the animals and uh, not every human is prepared to eat things that don't include animals so there are knock on circular consequences for everything else Uh, we'll talk about Ireland's um, stance with neutrality as I said Kevin Cunningham from Ireland thinks who has conducted that poll in today's Sunday Independent he'll be with us a little bit later this hour Uh, in the meantime Grania it's very difficult to get away from a domestic sense the the extraordinary humanitarian burden is the wrong word because of course this is something that most people would want to do but the task at hand that's facing the government which is detailed quite extensively in a lot of the papers today yeah. is going to be beyond the scale of anything we've seen before well absolutely it's it's uh i think you know i mentioned the the un saying it is one of the biggest kind of refugee crisis it's the scale of the speed of it and how, how fast it's happening and it's easy to say we will you know open our arms and take people in but it's it's the supports after they get here and the continuation of that that's going to be a real challenge for the Irish mm. government because we're very good in crisis situations but we're not as good at a kind of continuous supports and, a, and a, a process and a system that is coherent and makes sense. So you know the the and we've seen that with direct provision for yeah. example you know and that is kind of the system that the you know Ukrainians will be fleeing from war and arriving into a system that is not fit for purpose previously that we're tr- in the middle of trying to reform. So it is it, it's going to be a big um, challenge for the Irish government. I think the general uh, uh, approach or the message that is sent out that we are welcoming people and we are not going to abandon you is, is important though. And, you know, one of the points that they make about the EU is that um, it is uh, defend, it is, I suppose, bolstered the idea of the point of the EU that we are mm. opening our arms and that we are acting fast. We, I say, as the the European Union, European Union member states. Um, I'm not sure how, if you can say that definitely about the European Union, to be honest with you, but um, it has definitely shown its worth in wartime. And that was the big thing they said about the European Union. It's it's kept peace uh, within Europe, a continent that has historically liked fighting uh, amongst each other. Um, but whether we can, whether the EU can keep that up and keep it mm. at a at a proper scale, because the problem here is we do not know how long this is going to go on for. Yeah, and and this is a point, um, Jerry, which I've heard a lot of um, government figures make behind the scenes in the last couple of days, is that although we have some experience on a far smaller scale of um, needing to to house people who have landed in Greece from the, the Middle East or in more recent months people coming from Afghanistan. 
that it tends to come in maybe slightly more dribs and drabs that you can process people and there's some time mm. where you can you can process them you can have them in short term accommodation then you can find something more sustainable and you move them onwards but that this is not going to be a dribs and drabs if there are going to be some estimates 4 million people leaving Ukraine which could result in Ireland being expected to try and accommodate 80,000 uh, and by the way just think of that that is a full croak park mm-hmm. of people who, who need this country for refuge because they can't stay in their home country that they're all going to come in the course of maybe it could be a little over a month it could be just only a matter of weeks In that situation you're talking about the massive quick building of some sort of prefabricated housing uh, literally to mm. shelter people yeah. on an emergency basis that may not be ideal but it's better than the alternative which is nothing um, and then how, how they are fed and then how they are integrated and provided with visas to work uh, insofar in as any of them can get work and if you're doing something in scale very quickly uh, it's then how do you move on from there over, over months and maybe years because many of these people uh, will for whatever reason not want to go back mm. and we have to take the fact that if we take them in we're not going to force them back. Yeah. And I think that has to be understood from the get-go. We were speaking to um, the UNHCR spokesperson for Romania and we were asking what refugees need and it struck me about how simple things are, you know, because there's a lot of women and children fleeing. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are just like basic kind of healthcare for kids who have fevers and things like mm-hmm. that because yeah. they're in the middle, you know, this is the point made over mm-hmm. and over again that kids should be in school and they have the normal things that kids go through yeah. That's happening while you're fleeing war, and then there's you the didn't psychological have a chance to, to pick up the the Ukrainian version of a bottle of Calpol. Absolutely, or yeah, yeah. I, I, and and explain to kids the psychological mm. kind of um, you know uh, impact that it's having on kids already. That you know we were spoke, speaking to a, a Ukrainian journalist whose whose child is drawing tanks, um, mm. you know, as, as kind of without they, they take it in through osmosis and all those kind of supports mm-hmm, are going yeah. to be really important as well you know on that kind of scale it's going to be very tricky to get the balance right because it is such a crisis situation but those things are going to be so important to properly support refugees mm. and particularly if you've a significant number of children indeed any children at all the most important thing is presumably uh, that, that they have schooling that they have occupation mm. you know because that is that is a child's job yeah. to, to go to school and learning and all the rest and how uh, th- these little children they don't have much of any English how is that going to happen mm. uh, I don't have answers by the uh, way it's, it's, well, been, it's a massive yeah, challenge it's been extraordinary even seeing some of the Vox Pops that uh, might you know TV colleagues and others have been doing um, at Ukraine's borders with other countries and, and often you'll have um, parents or well it's, in this case it's obviously it's, it's very rarely fathers because the fathers are mm. of the conscription age they have to stay behind um, so the mothers are, are leaving the country and don't have any English and they're uh, expecting their kids aged 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 to basically act as their interpreters because that's going to be their, their conduit that they're going to be able to get to grips with the, the new place they're living in. Um, when I usually do the, the tour of the front pages I don't ever do pieces that are um, inside but just your mention there Grania of children who through osmosis find themselves drawing pictures of tanks um, there is a, a remarkable uh, spread across pages 10 and 11 um, of the mail on Sunday if anyone is going out to pick up a paper it, it really is worth picking up even for this spread alone um, I'll read you the first couple of paragraphs because it really just truly is extraordinary Ivan, aged six, is sitting in a classroom colouring in a tank with green crayon. Behind him, eight-year-old Sophia bites her lower lip in concentration while sketching a rabbit. These are 20 children in a class and they hang on the every word of their teacher, Larissa, who they call mum. Not because they're presumptuous or impudent, she explains later, but, her voice catching, because they are orphans and they feel the want of maternal love, particularly during wartime. 
These children are the really vulnerable ones in all this madness, she says, gesturing towards workmen delivering sandbags to protect the school's basement windows. Larissa is right, of course. Everyone is now familiar with scenes of infants clinging to their mothers at wind-whipped border crossings and on station platforms while fleeing Russian tanks. Who but Vladimir Putin himself could remain unmoved? Yet out of place in this world, even before the invasion, these sad-eyed orphans of Severodonetsk in southeast Ukraine draws still deeper from our reserves of pity. Some of the older children endured the worst of the 2014 Donbass war between Russian-backed separatists and Ukrainian troops. Natalia, for instance, was seven years old when Putin's rebels bombed her home in Luhansk, killing her parents. Another boy, Andrew, two at the time and living close by, lost his mother and father in the same assault. For this reason, a close bond exists between them with Natalia now 15, keeping a protective eye over the younger child. And then 12 days ago, Natalia, Andrew and the others found themselves caught in the epicentre of this much larger scale war, imperiling not just their pocket of Ukraine, but the entire country and perhaps beyond. Not again, we thought. We had to get them out, says Larissa. There was no other option. And the story goes on to explain how this was an organised getaway. 76 orphans who lived in this orphanage who are now taking refuge, basically with only their teachers for company and protection, having to leave in the dead of night so that they don't fall uh, to the same fate that their parents did, which is just a remarkable piece in today's um, Mail on Sunday. Uh, we do have to take a quick break. We're going After the break, we're going to talk to Kevin Cunningham from Ireland Thinks, uh, who has conducted today's opinion poll in the Sunday Independent, which shows that maybe there is not quite a majority, but maybe a growing appetite for Ireland to reconsider its military place in the world. Uh, it is 11.28, just about. Gavin Riley with you on the record this morning on News Talk. Uh, 53106 for your texts on the record. NT is our hashtag on Twitter. Uh, still join us studio by Jared Howlett and Grinding the A but also now joined in the line uh, by Kevin Cunningham who is a lecturer in politics at TU Dublin but he's also the managing director of Ireland Thinks which has conducted an opinion poll for today's Sunday Independent um, and Kevin you've been asking some questions around um, Ireland's place in the world from a, a military and, and from a neutrality perspective and you're finding if not shifting sands then maybe a little bit of a needle moving. Yeah yeah it's 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 very interesting. I mean, there's a very small change in the number of people. I mean, we asked about a month ago how, whether people thought that Ireland should join NATO. And there's only a relatively small change in that actual number, which is quite interesting, given what's happened, you know, in that, in, in that month. But I think you could define the Irish public into, into three broad groups. Um, the first group, you could say, are, are kind of the doves, people who are consistently uh, in favour of our, what we might describe as our military neutrality. Um, and they're consistent in, in that view. They would oppose NATO, but they'd also oppose this common EU defence arrangement, which is kind of something that's that's emerging now. And they'd yeah. probably be yeah, slightly more than a third. The second group, you'd have to say, are, are the Hawks. They'd favour military intervention. Uh, they'd want us to join NATO. 37% want us to join NATO. Um, and uh, also, in fact, to an extent that we asked this question, asking people whether they would consider that NATO should send troops in, even if that leads to a, a nuclear war, just to try to test to what extent there is that kind of hawkish yeah. population out there. And 29 uh, uh, were, were in that particular group. So, so, the, so those tw- 29%, groups, tw- 29%, so, so about two out of every seven yeah. people in the country are in favour of NATO deployment, even if it did mean the world being brought to the brink of a nuclear war. Yeah which is stunning, really, uh, a, a stunning response in some respects. Um, and, and that's obviously conditional. on Some of the people obviously believe Ireland should join NATO. You know, they would need to look at an overlap between those two to understand whether they thought that that was, that was uh, something that we should be doing. But one of the interesting things is, I think what, what muddies the waters in a lot of this is because there is this kind of middle group mm. that causes a bit of confusion because they're a bit more flexible 
about what it means to be neutral. Yeah, you know, which is a societal debate our, that yeah. we've seen because we, we've seen this idea that you know people sometimes thought that neutral meant that we were sort of politically impartial, that we didn't uh, you know even take a side, we didn't root for one cause over another. If there was a war happening elsewhere in the world, that we would basically yeah. turn a blind eye and say none of our business. And then there's others who say, well, no, you, you can still take a position. Neutrality just means that you don't deploy weaponry or personnel to enforce it. Yeah, that's, I mean, and, and that's how people think that we, we interpret our neutrality as this kind of vague non-militarism. But I mean, at the end of the day, one could argue that Ireland's engagement at a UN level when we're sending troops in, that isn't really neutral. If you go to the kind of Hague Convention and look at that, it isn't really neutral even militarily if we're engaging with in, in, in UN conflicts as well. But yeah, there, there is this kind of vagueness in relation to uh, this particular middle ground and you know they're in favour of neutrality but also in favour of this EU common defence agreement and I think that is probably the critical bit because that's probably something if it if the EU does continue as it appears to be moving towards further um, further agreements between countries in relation to what we do internationally mm. then you know we may end up with a referendum we may end up digging up the arguments that that, that occurred uh, in the Lisbon and the yeah. Nice Treaty in particular. I suppose we're already party to, to PESCO even if we're not participating in very much. So I suppose it's it's the, the slipperiest slope if that's the, the way you want to get into it. Um, you've been polling people on um, which of several options also most closely reflects their view on what Ireland should do uh, to this uh, Russian invasion in, in the short term. What have you found? Yeah, on that particular uh, on that particular question, so the options were to join NATO and support military action and that was 15%. Uh, the second option was to supply funds and military equipment, and that was 27%. Um, the third option was to support funds, but for non-military purposes only. That's the current government position. Yeah. That's 44%. That's, that's the, the constructive abstention uh, last weekend where we're, we're paying for fuel, but not the, the tanks, basically. Yeah, exactly. And then the last option was to not involve ourselves, not involve ourselves in any way, and that was that was just 10%. I think that's, I think that's particularly interesting as well, because... It wouldn't be right to, to describe the Irish public as, you know, purely self-interest. Okay, we don't want to get involved militarily, but we are quite, um, I think IR scholars would refer to it as kind of liberal internationalism or something. And that mm. we are quite keen on getting involved. Only that 10% don't want to get involved. And we had these other questions asking about whether people would be willing to accept a higher cost of living as a result of the sanctions. And, you know, as we all know, that the price of gas and petrol is, is gone through the roof. But still you have 66% in willing to favour those sanctions even if it means the higher cost of living only 25% okay. opposed that. So, Th- that's quite striking because think... at, at a time when we were already worried about the cost of living anyway uh, and the, yeah. this kind of post-pandemic economic sort of issue or this anomaly that was occurring where life was going to get more expensive anyway that even that would notwithstanding that two thirds of people are still in favour or, or would be prepared to tolerate a pinch in their own pockets if it meant doing what they see as the morally right thing yeah, exactly. And you do see, look, you do see this. Uh, I mean, some people describe Irish policy not as neutrality, but as good citizen. Uh, I think it's Ben Tundry uh, references mm. in one of his papers, uh, which I think is quite an interesting one. I mean, especially when you look at, we have another question on refugees as well, um, asking people in terms of, of whether they whether we should set a limit on refugees, how many refugees we should accept. And 38% believe that we shouldn't set any limit on the number of refugees effectively coming from Ukraine, which is, I mean, very liberal, I think, by international um, perspectives. Mm. Uh, I think that that's quite considerable. Um, 
lots of people also. We had this other question. Now, I don't know whether they would or not, but we asked people whether they would take in a, a Ukrainian refugee and, and 20% said that they, they would and they and that they could as well, which is kind of interesting. I mean, I don't know if they, I don't know if that would actually transpire or anything like yeah. that, but I think it's this kind of, this good citizen thing, you know, I mm. think it's quite, and you look, you can see it with the, the enormous amount of uh, donations that were flooding yeah. in uh, for the yeah. for the Red Cross. As well. it, it is curious, and we might might talk to you some other time about whether you think that would be matched with uh, with previous um, humanitarian crises when there was people coming from from Syria or Afghanistan, whether they'd feel that level of generosity. Uh, but it's fascinating stuff. Thank you for coming on air this morning to talk to us about uh, all of that. That is Kevin Cunningham, who is the managing director of Ireland Thinks, which conducted today's poll um, on behalf of the Sunday Independent. Jared um, Hallen, I'm I'm quite struck by that idea that two thirds of people are still absolutely in favour of taking some kind of action and not necessarily anything militaristic but even just sanctions knowing that it's going to hit them in the pockets that it's going to mean you know two euro a, a litre for the petrol and diesel that goes into the car because they are so committed that this is the sort of thing that needs to be done Well let's see where that's at in six months time a year in six months time uh, let's see whether that's If it's uh, not two euro if it's 250 or whatever and, and let's see if that extra they're prepared to pay up front does or doesn't translate into inflation driven pay increases um, so I think a lot, lot of testing on, on these, you know, momentary sentiments. Um, finance officials are predicting this week that on top of the four and a half percent inflation we have, we could be in line for another four percent mm. in a worst case scenario. So I, I think what people are prepared to pay uh, can only be tested over time when they actually have to pay. There's going to be high price paid across the board in this country over the coming months. Uh, that could uh, really knock a lot of assumptions over for the coming years uh, out of shape so I wouldn't jump to any conclusions on behalf of a hot take mm. on any okay. of this today. Uh, Granny, would you have the same scepticism about that? Uh, I don't know like I think taking accepting a cost of living um, you know before when a, min- a junior minister said shop around and that you know you have to be patient when the government tries to tackle this kind of economic phenomenon brought on by the pandemic and we're expecting mm. it to calm down is very different to accepting a squeeze because there is a war going on on your continent that it, and, and that all the images that you're seeing and that we're going to take actions to squeeze financially the country mm. that's doing that. I think people are happy to, you know, when you see how people want to get involved but they don't want to get involved militarily, this kind of suits that yeah. that. But uh, but I don't mean to interrupt you, but I I, I don't know whether if, if, you know, if Jared is right and that these Department of Finance projections suggest that inflation, which was going to be about four and a half percent or so, if that's now going to become eight and a half percent, if you need 109 euro this year to buy stuff that cost you 100 euro last year, uh, I do wonder whether people would have the same moralism about it where they still think it's the right thing to do if there's that little left at the end of the month you know we yeah we will see i suppose um and you know the esri are saying it could go up to 10% and it was 5% 5.5% in december mm. and it was dipping but i it's it's easier to understand why it, it it's costing so much i suppose that the i suppose it also might be concentrated in certain sectors like the you know the the um haulage sector is quite squeezed by fuel costs yeah. and, and taxi drivers and things like that. So it might squeeze a certain cohort of the population more than others as well. It also just depends on how we react to it and how effective the EU re- response is to it all as well. But I am struck by how many people are 66%. That's higher than those who want who say they want to be remain neutral, militarily neutral, 63%, 66% are saying that they're happy to take a higher cost of living, I suppose, as, as you say, it doesn't... Uh, 
it doesn't say what level of yeah. high cost mm. within that poll, but it is quite striking. Jerry, do you want to come back in? Well, yes, it's just that we don't know for sure if the people who are prepared to bear a greater burden, and I think in fairness many are, are also the people who are locking in reduced uh, excise duties on, on fuel, for example, because, you know, we are also committed to, to climate change. Mm. Uh, and to, to balance these policies in tandem over time, will in a scenario when at least we should, and I hope we will, stop borrowing extraordinary amounts of money uh, to fund day-to-day expenditure, that leaves for an extremely difficult 2023-2024 uh, scenario. Yeah, um, Anthony is on Twitter saying that there won't be a referendum on neutrality. There'd have to be a referendum because there's a constitutional clause about taking part in any kind of a, a mutual or sort of a common defence thing. And he says that will never happen because politicians would have to decide that. And as we all know in this country, politicians will do everything to avoid uh, taking difficult decisions. Uh, somebody else who calls themselves absolute messer, but I don't think they're messing when they make this point. Um, they're talking about the idea of having to build, as you suggested, Jared, and this has been floated during the week, having to build modular housing on mm. state lands as, as an urgent short-term measure. And he says, uh, hey, presto, we can actually release public land and build on it. Peter McVeary and all must be wondering why this couldn't have been done for the homeless crisis. The other refugees, uh, other in inverted commas, must wonder why they are left in appalling conditions and no issue. We need to question this. There, he has a point. He does, of course. Um, but the sort of modular uh, housing that we would build in an emergency is not the sort of housing people want to pay a 30-year mortgage for. <laughs> uh, very true. Um, Gorney, there's a couple of pieces. Uh, there's an interview with Simon Coveney on the front page of the Sunday Times where he's talking about needing to reassess military power and political alliances. Indeed, he was on uh, the Anton Savage show here on News Talk yesterday morning making that case. Uh, Owen O'Malley is arguing that it's, it's time to pick sides in our neutrality. The Business Post says a piece about to arm or not to arm. The debate is no longer theoretical. There's a bit of me that sort of wonders, like, yes, if, if this is a grand rewriting of the, the European security order, if we now need to, like, reset the rules the same as it was in 1945, then yes, you can have that discussion. But, like, it is possible that, you know, barring, obviously, the catastrophe that's going on in Ukraine, it, it's possible that the the security order will hold. It's possible that Russia will be put back in its box and that all of this, obviously, with terrible loss of life that the, the prevailing order will still prevail. And I kind of wonder whether we're, we're kind of jumping into, you know, oh, we have to reorder the whole world now. Everything has to be written upside down. Maybe it doesn't. Yeah, I, mean, it might, I know what you mean. It might be too soon to say that. And I also think, you know, when the Tanish Dilly of Radker said during the week that we had to, um, you know, we had to look at neutrality again. I think that's quite a big statement to say in the middle of, of a conflict. It's, mm. it's quite charged thing to say then. Um, but it, 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 I think it does warrant a debate. I think it's quite interesting that the Greens who are neutral, Kieran Cuff is saying in that piece you mentioned in the Business Post, To Arm or Not to Arm by Michael Brennan, mm. he says that the events of the last week have brought a lot of soul searching for us all. And I think that's kind of where everybody's at. They're like, well, you know, everybody said Russia was a threat. A lot of people said it's scaremongering and there's nothing to fear. They just like sabre rattling. They've been sabre rattling for, you know, the past 10 years. But now that it's happened, it's like, OK, well, maybe we should give more credence to, you know, the idea of everybody being military neutral and laying down arms is fine. That is 
a lot, a lot of the time predicated on a bad leader not being in charge of a very powerful country, in this mm. case, a nuclear power. And this is what all of this boils down to. You mentioned Putin's bombs and Putin's missiles. And yes, like I'm that. saying this during the break that so much of it is personalised that, that even the newspaper headlines talk about Vladimir Putin shelling uh, evacuees, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Russia yeah. as if he is the state. Yeah, you know, it, this isn't Russia's war, it's Putin's war, yeah. I think, a lot of the time when I'm reading these pieces. But that is the problem. You know, it would be great if we could stay military neutral. The argument for, you know, having a defence, whatever about getting involved in other countries, I think a lot of people do not feel okay with that, particularly given our history um, and where a lot of the Irish public's kind of uh, feelings lie in in terms of supporting uh, Palestine and the Israel-Palestine issue defensively should we have something there just because it's it's kind of like is that the baseline or yeah. is the baseline neutrality and we deal with conflicts if and when they happen yeah, we have to be important Jared, I think it's as well to, to make that distinction between at least being military capable of self-defense which you know by the, by the admission of the recent commission we are actually not capable of doing the defense forces cannot defend the state at least capably but there's a difference between making sure that they can and then getting involved in another military alliance. You might have Finland right now capable of self-defence, but considering joining NATO, we could at least go to the Finnish level of not getting involved in, in military unions or defence associations, but at the very least being capable of even monitoring our own airspace, for example. You have to take with some scepticism the sayings of politicians about rethinking our defence policy when in their 11 years in government so far uh, actually you know, walked back our defence capability in terms of readiness, in terms mm. of resources. Uh, the Defence Commission, as you said, you know, shows what a shambles it is. We're supposed to have something called a national security policy. It still hasn't been produced. Our main security vulnerabilities, by the way, are, are probably in cyberspace mm. rather than anywhere else. Uh, and we're nowhere, we're not even remotely at the races in terms of capacity, particularly bearing in mind that we platform on these islands major tech industries that are themselves then targets for, you know, the West in, in, mm. in, in, in general, but also non-alignment and neutrality. What does that mean in a globalised economy? I mean, I'm reading in this morning's papers that there's 50 billion um, in uh, Russian um, loans uh, yeah, and funding. Yeah, in the IFSC. In, in, in IFSC. Through these, these section 110. And, and then know. I read, and I had to ask Ronya for help, she kindly did, there's three trillion Euro yeah. mm. of, of various people's money down there mm. and, a, and a trillion by the way I've never had one it's a tiny it's a tiny never in all of your time around uh, government no, buildings you've never I seen mean, a trillion euro re- reports I'm afraid that was fake news it's a thousand billion so the scale of globalisation yeah. how deeply we are enmeshed how do you be non-aligned mm. how do you be neutral mm. really in that context yeah. this is not something De Valera or Lamas ever had to deal with in the second world war because they could cut the turf they could enforce uh, grain growing on farmers and we somehow got through it. It seems a devil there if anything. Indeed, but that era is over. Um, we well, well, well. I'm afraid we're not able to, to pick the brain of Evan Devler to see what he would think about the current predicament. Uh, there is so much more in today's papers about Ukraine, and as I said, we're going to be talking to um, UNICEF about the the humanitarian issues in Ukraine, and also to the MP uh, Lesia Vasilenko. We'll play you that interview um, after twelve o'clock. We're going to draw a line under our discussion in Ukraine right now because there are a couple of other bits and pieces in today's uh, newspaper.
papers about housing, for example, but also um, the labour pains, as you might call them. In fact, the decommissioning of AK-47, as one paper put it. We're talking about that after this quick break. 11.48 on the record. Gavin Riley with you till one o'clock this lunchtime on News Talk. 53106 for your text on the record. NT is our hashtag on Twitter. Still joined in studio uh, by Gronin the A and Jared Howland. Uh, off air, we have been admiring the range of headlines there have been about the putch of Alan Kelly during the week. We mentioned um, the, the decommissioning of AK-47, Labour pains. Um, Shane Ross has a piece in today's Sunday Independent which refers to Labour getting rid of their leader as Extinction Rebellion. I um, don't know whether you agree with Shane Ross's viewpoint, but if you do, it's certainly quite a, a clever headline. Um, Jared, you've been opining on this in today's Sunday Times. Yes. Uh, I mean, it is a bit of a palace coup, which in a social democratic membership movement uh, is, is a bit of an irony. Uh, it's the second time they've had, uh, you know, met in private houses to dispatch a leader. Eamon Gilmore uh, was afflicted with mm. the same torment. Eamon Gilmore at the very least though had come through a, a pretty bruising local election campaign and the European elections in 2014. There was obvious cause. Yeah, but but, but he, were... he had also brought Labour to its greatest electoral victory ever and he had walked him into government with overwhelming support of the members and circumstances in 2011 where there was no need for Labour to go in because Fianna fall shattered electorally, having negotiated the bailout with the Troika would have supported Fine Gael in all circumstances to, so to implement that de agreement. De facto confidence and supply anyway. Absolutely. And uh, in opposition for 14 years, uh, out of vain ambition uh, and really stupid politics, Labour went into government in 2011 mm. and all else since follows from well, that. Well, you, uh, you probably read Eamon Gilmore's book Inside the Room about all of that and he makes the case in that book that had they not gone in um, that Labour or that Fine Gael would have been much less mitigated in power. That if Fine Gael had held all the ministries at the same time then their economic worldview would have meant slash and burn here they're well, everywhere I, really I, bad I, public I, services. I, I have news for Eamon Gilmore that worldview whether it was Fine Gael or whether it was the Troika or was the synergy of both completely predominated. Mm. And that is the so it turned out to be Frankfurt's way in the end. Of course, yeah. it was Frankfurt's way in the end. It certainly wasn't Labour's way, and everything uh, follows mm. from that. So then, and this, what, in a sense, is detail. But there's a yeah, bit. So you're writing about then the, the deeper problems that that Labour yeah. faces beyond just the identity of the leader. So what if you they? go back to Dick Spring uh, in the eighties uh, when he was in with Gareth Fitzgerald, and that was the era of Thatcher and Reagan. So since the fall of the Berlin Wall, you've had an economic liberalism, the predominant ideology in the Western world. Mm. And Labour as a social democratic party firstly abandoned socialism, which was a notionally part of its programme. And as a social democratic party, it had less and less to say about the economic fundamentals over a generation. It had more and more to say about cultural issues, Mm. was strikingly successful in many ways in that respect, gave leadership to intergenerational cultural change in this country on a seismic scale all the time walking back and back further away from the have-nots in terms of the economic mm. issues, which ultimately drove their votes okay. away so, from Labour, towards Sinn Féin so and others. all of that having happened then, what does the party do? Well, the, If they come to you looking for public, public consultancy? Yeah, there's only two, two this is a two-item agenda. One is survival and second is placing. So can they survive uh, a six, seven, eight TDs uh, into the next door? If they had a good campaign, by the way, mm. that six or seven could easily become eight or nine or ten, depending on what's going on in the campaign. But it's the second thing, the placement, that's critical. Where will that Labour Party be when the Sinn Féin wave crashes? Mm. As you think it inevitably will. Of every wave crashes. 
Um, Gronia, what do you do you make of all of this? We, we were saying during the break that if um, if Labour's big issue is the now the existence of the Social Democrats cannibalising so much of the ten percent that Labour used to be able to bank on, what do you make of Alan Kelly being removed and the uh, the presumptive now appointment of Ivana Batrick uh, in his place? I suppose if Fianna Fáil are being squeezed by Fine Gael and Sinn Fein, then I suppose Labour is being squeezed by the Sock Dems and Sinn Fein in mm. the opposite the opposite end of the scale. Um, and even though Labour's message should be, you know, traditionally should be one that still resonates today, again, you know, in the wake of the pandemic, there's so many workers' rights issues that have come to the fore, mm. but it hasn't been Labour grabbing onto them. It's been Sinn Féin. And I think that's um, taken the impetus out of the party a little bit. I you know, Hugh O'Connell's writing in the Sunday Independent today about how Ivana Batchik was responsible for shepherding through legislation during that 2011 to 2016 period. Mm. So she's not completely absolved. I, of... I was wondering that because people don't think of being the, the deputy leader of the Shannon. They don't consider it as the equivalent of being in cabinet. But Alan Kelly clearly on the plinth the other night said, we're finding it very difficult to yes. detach ourselves from being in government and I'm part of that. That's it. I mean, housing housing minister, former housing minister, yeah. minister who shepherded water but charges. Yeah, but but Ivana Batchik in her own way Sorry, was also course, yeah. equally possible or responsible for there, getting a lot of yeah. that over the line. And and I think as well, it'll be interesting to see, even though she hasn't been in the doll, she has been around for a long time. Mm. And there is a, obviously, we know that that has an impact on voters. You know, the, the piece notes that there was no Kelly bounce in his 23 months as leader because he's a familiar face, obviously. Uh, but also, you know, I think Alan Kelly's leader, I think, did calm down and became much more of a kind of a leader than he had been say previously mm. in his tenure during the Labour Party but it's interesting what he said about not being able to get momentum during the pandemic yeah. and that we were in that freeze frame of politics and what impact that's going to have on the political system in Ireland because a lot has changed from that 2020 election um, it, it's it's interesting I do think there will be a place for Labour but I think Sinn Féin does mm. have to crash for them to capitalise well, on that Just coming back to that point then Jared, because if, if the Sinn Féin wave will, will inevitably uh, recede and the question for Labour is where are they then when are they still clinging to the rocks when the tide goes down um, how do they make themselves different to the Social Democrats because there's that poll in today's Sunday Independent again I think the Social Democrats are at 6% and Labour are at mm. 3 well, this is, uh, frankly, a lot more difficult. Uh, perhaps, uh, and this could be wishful thinking, Ivana Batchik could have more traction vis-a-vis -vis both Mary Lou as a female leader and, and perhaps that she, uh, as another woman, can go in harder uh, on Mary Lou uh, and their p positions on a whole range of issues. Does she have the temperament to go in hard on anybody? I don't think I've ever heard her raise her voice. And the Ivana Batchik I know, and I don't know her very long, but I, I don't know her very well, but I know her a little for a very long time. She's an incredibly nice person. And uh, I, I, does she have uh, that bludgeoning in her to bring out and bear down on another person? I'm not sure. I but mean, we'll Alan Kelly out. was bludgeoning and didn't seem to do much good, though, either. Is I don't know if that's what voters want. I suppose that's the, the question, mm. big question. Whatever voters want, can Labour figure that out and well, can they capitalise on it? Bludgeoning is the wrong word. OK. I, I think to upend... And whether, however tactically you do that, mm. it is constant with your own personality. Is 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 it different for for different people? And you're right, Gronia, that bludgeoning in, in that sense doesn't work. But you do have to go in and take out. Mm. Yeah, and I think the 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 issue is that Sinn Féin is soaking up so many of that type of you know the 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 vote of people who are 
annoyed with mm. the, the status quo and mm. the system of government and Fine Gael and it is going to be hard to break through that until Sinn Féin get into government mm. and you have something they have no yeah. history in government to, to hit them over the head yeah, with. Which, which could be the, the useful thing for them when the time comes. Uh, we are completely out of time going in the A of the journal.ie and Jared Howland, a columnist with the Sunday Times and Public Affairs Consultant. Thank you both very much for coming in to join me in studio.